Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Friday, the 21st of July. Thank you for making this podcast one of the most listened to podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore on Apple Podcasts. As well as finding us on Apple, we're also on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Substack. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's one-year loan prime rate, which is the medium-term lending facility used for corporate and household loans, was left unchanged at 3.55%. The five-year rate, a reference for mortgages, was kept at 4.2% in line with market forecasts. U.S. jobless claims fell by more than expected last week. The number of U.S. applications for jobless claims fell by 9,000 to 228,000 in the week ending July the 15th. That's the lowest level since mid-May. And consolidating Fed officials calls for another 25 basis point rate hike in its meeting next week. India, the world's biggest rice exporter, is banning exports of non-Basmati white rice in an attempt to ward off looming domestic price rises. Heavy rains have hurt crops in the country and rice prices have risen by more than 11% over the last 12 months. The ban will affect about a quarter of India's rice exports and risks sending global food prices even higher. India accounts for about 40% of the global rice trade and Asia consumes about 90% of the global supply of rice. And wheat prices have risen sharply on global markets after Russia bombed Ukraine's port cities for a third consecutive night. The airstrikes on Ukraine's Odessa region ports have destroyed 60,000 tonnes of grain and damaged storage infrastructure. Joseph Burrell, the EU's foreign and defence chief, said if this grain is not only stopped but also destroyed, this is going to create a huge food crisis in the world. Wheat prices have risen for three consecutive days. On Thursday, the most actively traded wheat contract on the Chicago Board of Trade settled around 1.4% higher, notching a three-week high. It follows a jump of 8.5% in the previous session, which was the biggest daily gain in more than a year. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped for a ninth consecutive day on Thursday. It's the Dow's longest daily winning streak since September 2017. But the broader market suffered after declines in Netflix and Tesla, which had reported underwhelming earnings a day earlier. The 30-stock Dow, which has less dependence on tech stocks, added 164 points, or half a percent, to close at 35,225. It was boosted by shares of drug maker Johnson & Johnson, which rose over 6% after it hiked four-year guidance. The S&P 500 slipped 0.7% to 4,535. The Nasdaq Composite slumped 2.1%, that's its biggest one-day fall in more than four months, to finish the session at 14,063. Shares of Tesla fell 9.7%, the biggest single one-day drop since early January, after profit margins slipped as a series of price cuts weighed on the electric car maker's earnings. 
Meanwhile, Netflix missed sales estimates and posted lower-than-expected guidance for the following quarter. Its shares dropped 8.4%. It was the stock's biggest one-day drop since December 2022. Semiconductor stocks pulled back after Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing reported profits plunged 23% in the second quarter and it offered weaker than expected sales guidance for the year. The Philadelphia Semiconductor Sector Index dropped more than 3%. US listed shares of Taiwan Semiconductor declined 5% while Intel and NVIDIA each shed over 3% and AMD dropped more than 5%. Treasury bonds saw heavy selling following the jobless figures. The benchmark 10-year Treasury yield, which moves with inflation and growth expectations, rose 11 basis points to 3.85%, its largest one-day yield increase of the month. The two-year yield, which moves with interest rate expectations, rose 8 basis points to 4.83%. And the US dollar index, which measures the currency against a basket of peers, rose half a percent. The Chinese yuan rose 0.7% in Shanghai to 7.1761 renminbi as the People's Bank of China adjusted some rules aimed at increasing companies' ability to raise funds overseas. China's major state-owned banks were seen selling dollars to buy yuan in the offshore spot market on Thursday to support the currency. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index extended losses into a third day, losing 24 points, or 0.1% to 18,928. The Tech Index fell 1.2%, its fourth day of declines. Sunny Optical tumbled 13.7% after warning that profit would sink by 65 to 70% in the half year to June from the same period last year. And mainland Chinese markets were also lower, with the Shanghai Composite Index down 0.9% at 3,170. And futures markets are pointing to a small loss for the Hang Seng at the open this morning of about 20 points or 0.1%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Always happy to see in the studio on a Friday morning, Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Hey, good morning. And joining us this week, John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment. Morning, John. Good morning, Peter. Now, China has vowed to treat private companies the same as state-owned enterprises, according to a joint statement from the Communist Party's Central Committee and the State Council. They released a 31-point action plan, which vowed to improve the business environment for private companies. The statement's also said that governments have various levels are also encouraged to invite entrepreneurs for consultation before drafting and evaluating policies. Furthermore, it will support share listings and bond sales of private firms, as well as support private enterprises in expanding overseas businesses. Um, So, Francis, what do you make of that, first of all? Well, this is just an official document, but we want to see some actions, because uh, ever since uh, 2020, the government has been uh, treating the private enterprises very harshly, and levying record fines and and, uh, (laughs) everything else, uh, restricting their their market share. But but the upshot was was this uh, employment. Uh, unemployment rose sharply, especially among the young people, because the private enterprises are not hiring any anybody. So I think uh, the government recognized this mistake and tried to rectify it. But uh, what's the result? We, we, uh, the jury is still out. It's too early to say. 
John, do, do you think China can do this? Can it really treat private companies as well as it treats state-owned enterprises? Because, as Francis says, it hasn't been able to do so in recent yeah. years, has it? Yeah. Well, I think it's a case of uh, show me, and um, I think it's going to take a while for um, people to be convinced. Um, we saw a chorus of uh, approval from the big uh, uh, private sector bosses, um, but uh, you know, you wonder. Well, well, yes, we're going to support you. We're going to support you by using uh, uh, bureaucratic means, and that the, uh, the recent shift towards having you know communist party officials embedded within uh, all em enterprises. Um, you know, it, it, we're going to have to see how that that works out. Mm. I mean, this is not policy, is it? It's a document, um, but it's mm. not the same as policy. Yes, it's more like uh, administrative procedures. Mm -hmm. um, but as I say, there's no, there's no, um, there's no hint from there that you know e equal treatment for the private sector means means being uh, managed in the same way as the public sector uh, companies mm. are. Is is what well is one possible interpretation. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, what was interesting was the way China's billionaires really piled in to praise um, <laughs> Xi Jinping's private yeah. sector reforms. First yeah. of all, we had Pony Ma, Ma the founder yeah. of Tencent. He praised President Xi's efforts to reform the country's <laughs> private sector. He said President Xi's proposals for stimulating the sector have advanced our sense of responsibility and mission to create value for users, industry and society. <laughs> we should, should bear in mind, by the way, that Tencent was fined over $400 million by the PBOC yeah. earlier this month as part of that crackdown. And then uh, Mr. Ma, I mean, he rarely voices his opinions, doesn't he? And then he was joined by Xiaomi co-founder Li Jun. He wrote a separate editorial who called it a clear policy signal for companies to push forward with high-quality development and contribute to the modernization of science and technology. And then we had um, self soft drinks magnate Zhang Guingzhou said his group, Wahaha, would take the path of serving the country and not let down the party or the state. And another 13 local entrepreneurs all joined in. I mean, this, if this wasn't such an obviously coordinated sort of move, show of support, it would probably be a little bit more effective, wouldn't it? But it's so obviously sort of coordinated to time with this uh, new sort of document from the State Council. Yeah, I, I think the Communist Party just cannot stop uh, grandstanding everything. Uh, they want everybody to be unanimous uh, in praising the central government. So I think mm -hmm. this is what you get. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, the hypocrisy is there. Everybody can see it. That mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, when, when they talk to you privately, um, Francis, when you speak to a lot of the uh, firms uh -huh. on the mainland, private companies on the mainland, mm -hmm. Are they saying to you, you know, what a great job uh, Beijing has done in supporting private companies and how much they're no, looking forward no, to... No, 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 they don't say that. They, they, they say that they, they, they just want the government to keep out of their businesses. Right. <laughs> Why is this happening, John, right now? Is this to do with the economic data that we've had out recently, which was showing a sharp slowdown, wasn't it? And so yeah. China really needs its private companies to, to invest yeah. and to boost growth and to hire people. Yeah, I think the the pennies dropped that they've created a problem, um, and uh, so now they're going to have to find a way of, of um, you know, which has had many uh, you know unintended consequences, but perhaps predictable consequences, um, and now they're going to try and find a way of um, 
you know, uh, sidling out of it. Um, whether we were seeing a, as br an abrupt a U-turn as we did, did on uh, COVID uh, lockdowns, uh, I doubt. But um, so, yeah, fine, okay. So what, what, what's what's going to happen next? Um, we just uh, all have to wait and see. But uh, uh, I think you're right. I think um, uh, an another big uh, statistic. Uh, earlier this week was the fact that uh, China has zero inflation mm. and in fact um, as we know is uh, exporting deflation in the terms of um, ever lower prices for its uh, manufactured goods exports um, which is probably having a, a beneficial effect at least at this stage or in, in the West and in terms of headline inflation. Mm. But if it wasn't for services, there would be deflation, wouldn't there? A real deflation on the mainland. Yes, 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 because of uh, the uh, the overproduction and, and price uh, price cutting of a whole range of, of of goods. Yeah. What do you both make of this eleven point blueprint to, to boost mm. demand that the National Development and Reform Commission came out with mm -hmm. earlier this week? They want to boost consumption. Uh, amongst uh, sort of ho householders, so they're encouraging them basically to go and redecorate their homes, buy more, <laughs> uh, buy more domestic, uh, um, you know, items, and, and so on. What what do you make of the plan that they came up with? This eleven point blueprint to go and do that. But but this is, is old stuff. It's nothing new. We had that before. <laughs> so so I doubt it will be uh, effective mm. at all. I think. Uh, 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 some things you unless you give people money, you you just cannot say tell people buy something something like that. <laughs> like in Hong Kong, you give people five thousand dollars and they go out to spend. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. <laughs> so so when when you want to create demand, you 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 have to give people money. You yeah, you cannot yeah. just say things. These are empty gestures. Yeah, and this doesn't create any new money for them, doesn't it? It's no, not like a consumption voucher is coming or something, <laughs> which would give you some real money to to go out and spend. But also, isn't it true that Chinese households? It's not that they don't have money to spend; they actually do have money to spend, don't they? They have savings. They have enormous savings. Yeah, and um, and you know they have access to credit. It's not even that credit isn't hard; is difficult to come by. It's just that they don't want to spend at the moment. So, how do you change that? Well, the the problem is that you need inflation because if you believe the prices going up, you will go and buy things like uh, like like property prices. If the property prices are falling, nobody will go and buy a flat. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fellow, yeah, that's pure that. and simple. Yeah. So then it's important that the government uh, in Beijing takes steps to make sure China doesn't slip into deflation because that's going to be disastrous, isn't yeah, it, for the economy? Def definitely. We had that yeah. before. Yeah. yeah. John, what, what do you think of this plan? Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, the, 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 big, the big issue is, is missing from the plan, and that's how to... Um, Reliquify and get confidence back into into the property market. Mm -hmm. I mean that's the key for everything. Once you once you get into a, a sort of virtuous circle on that 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 score, people are buying flat uh, flats or moving flats and then buying new uh, you know carpets, fridges, cookers, etc. etc. Then then that's that's what gets the um, the domestic uh, consumption market moving. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I think all efforts should be. Um, because it, you know, as we've said many times, it won't be easy. It won't be quick. It'll take. It, it's a, a multi-year thing rather. Than, but um, mm. yeah, getting getting the um, 
you know the ghost uh, the the ghost uh, apartment buildings finished um you know and then start to discount prices or whatever you know do do auctions do <coughs> do uh, lucky draws uh, anything to get people to get the ha- the market moving again it's, it's liquidity rather than <coughs> You know, the focus is, is maintaining the price level. Of course, mm. that's impossible. You'll just end up with a, a zombie situation, like like Japan um, did. Uh, you know, tw- over twenty years or so. <coughs> so, um, yeah, we've got to get liquidity back and confidence back into the property market. Even that main means taking a hit and a haircut, loan <coughs> some developers. Um, you know much more aggressive resection, uh, re- restructuring in that sector and so on. So what are they got to do in the property sector? Because that, that's the real challenge, isn't it? Because it's such a large part of the economy and, and the funding yeah. model for developers is, is now broken. Yeah, that's a really tough job because uh, to save it, uh, I think you, you, you need many trillions of dollars. Uh, look at, look at uh, just one company is indebted to the uh, a tune of 2.4 trillion yuan mm. is as, almost as much as big as the Hong Kong economy. Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, I don't think the government is inclined to pour so much mm. money in, into the property sector. It's, it's a really tough job. Mm. I mean, if we look at uh, the investments in the property <laughs> sector from from the uh, from the data um it collapsed almost eight percent in the first six months of the year so it's not really getting any better is it it's not stabilizing we thought it might be at the beginning of the year but now it doesn't seem to be and on top of that uh, we've got other problems for the economy as well exports they're down seven and a half percent in may there seems to be the problems seem to be mounting up for the mainland economy yeah, I think for the property sector, the problem is really oversupply, uh, except for the first-line cities. And for every other uh, uh, city uh, and counties, you have 20% oversupply. And with the population not growing, it will be very, very difficult to, 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 to buy up the, all those uh, vacant flats. And and the other big problem, of course, is the youth unemployment rate, isn't yeah, it? That's, uh, that, that's another issue, 21.3%, um, a, a record high. Um, businesses, they're just, well, they're, it's not that they're not just reluctant to hire new staff, they're not really in a good position, are they, to hire new staff at the moment? No, uh, uh, of course, the private sector's uh, not be, uh, not been hiring for the last two years. But the, I think the biggest hit was really in the, the uh, in the ban on tutoring schools. I think uh, from what I learned, uh, something like twenty percent or twenty five percent of the uh, uh, young graduates actually got uh, got employment in the tutoring school. And if you close them, then many people will go unemployed. I think this is one of the policy disasters, and uh, and the parents are actually going underground to to get tutoring for their children. Mm. So, so so it's a nightmare for 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 all the parents and actually for the country as well. What about the foreign environment? That's another tough situation, isn't it? China's Commerce Ministry on Wednesday said non-economic factors were growing and interfering with the country's foreign trade, and it was described as facing an extremely severe situation in the second half of the year. So just to remind you, 
of the figures, uh, the dollar value of China's exports, they plunged 12.4% in June from a year ago. That was worse uh, than the previous month's decline of 7.5%. Another area, really, where things seem to be getting worse. Mm. Uh, yes, that's, uh, that's a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Of course, part of the, part of the decrease is, is to do with price cutting. Um, but um, the American administration's policy, you know, um, Inflation Reduction Act and, and so on, subsidi- you know, uh, giving incentives for U.S. companies to um, uh, manufacture more at home or, or in nearby countries such as Mexico are, are really starting to bite. Um, there are exceptions, though, interestingly. For example, they've had to back off on um, uh, solar panels because solar panels, China has um, an overwhelming market share in, in, in in that sector, something like 80% of world uh, world solar panel supply comes from China, so they haven't been able to um, to yet find find a way of replacing that. But it just shows you what's, uh, what 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 can happen. Um, at the same time, the apparent trade war in the high tech sector uh, <laughs> is interesting. Yeah, um, I think the way the the Americans are playing, I think, quite a clever game now. I, I see there. They're talking to China again on a whole, uh, a whole series of, uh, of issues and trying to normalise everything except um, they don't want China to get hold of the, the, you know, the very high-end uh, chip-making technology, etc. And that's what uh, China is, um, <laughs> is um, yeah. you know, screaming about. <laughs> we want your best toys. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, so, so you get this extraordinary contradictory attitude. Oh, we're going to ban, uh, you know, my, um, micron chips um, because they're a danger uh, to our society. But um, uh, on the other hand, they want, they want to have other chips, the best chips, or rather the ability to make them. This is the, the key thing, the ability to make them. Can these issues be separated out? I mean, John Kerry, who was in Beijing earlier this week, was saying, you know, things like climate change issues, for example, um, they, they're not dependent upon the overall economic relationship. We can still yeah. talk about this yeah. um, despite what's happening elsewhere. Now, Wang Yi disagrees. He says, nope, this is all, you know, this is all within the yeah. same ambit of overall yeah. sort of relations. And they're talking about now they're going to retaliate if, uh, if the US yeah. introduces an investment ban. Um, we had the Chinese uh, the Chinese ambassador to Washington saying we can't just simply sit idly by. So there's the potential for this to get worse, isn't there? Well, that's um, that's the American strategy. Um, <laughs> I'm not. It's not easy to combat from the China perspective. What, what can they do? They say, oh, okay. Well, in that case, we're going to build even more coal-fired power station, um, <laughs> they are. Or something like that. And they're <laughs> they doing it really anyway, yeah, despite 52 degree temperatures in uh, Xinjiang so um, yeah I I just think it's a very interesting (laughs) development and quite clever um, the Americans just won things their way (laughs) yeah yeah that's right they have in the last um, the last year or so but it is having an effect, isn't it? These uh, these export controls on on semiconductors. There's no question that uh, it's impacted yeah. China's economy and it's impacted China's development. Even though the US says it doesn't want to hold back um, China's development, it is having the effect of doing that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, China is feeling the squeeze on semiconductors. Yeah. No yeah. doubt about that.
Yeah. What, what about an investment ban? What impact will that have on both US firms and also <laughs> um, on China if this comes, uh, comes to pass? Uh, I, I think the American companies will miss out on the China market. I think uh, what you have is really the European uh, uh, companies, especially the German, German companies like Volkswagen, that take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so the, uh, as far as the investment concerned, it, it, it is not that there's no alternative. There is alternative. Uh, so, so, so America may be uh, hit, hitting itself. Mm. But maybe the Americans will put pressure on the Europeans uh, not to uh, not to step into and and you know fill the hole when when they pull out of investing into into China. Yeah, they try to they try to do that with uh, South Korea, but I I doubt that will succeed. Mm. I really doubt that. And also the other area where things didn't really work out either in terms of agreement with China is on debt relief. We had the G20 finance ministers meeting in India um, earlier this week. Once again, uh, the G20 failed to issue a communique because they couldn't agree, first of all, on debt relief and then also on the wording um, about Russia's invasion um, of Ukraine. What what is the issue on on debt relief that's stopping them here uh, from agreeing to try and relieve the pressure on poor developing nations? Well, as I understand it, the uh, China sort of gone out on a limb, really, or went out on a limb with the whole Belt and Road uh, stuff and uh, doing infrastructure projects all over, uh, you know, South and Central Asia and, and, and that parts of Africa and so on, um, and on a unilater- uh, unilateral basis, providing, you know, the whole package. Mm. The, the loans, the, the construction company, even importing the labour to do the to do the, the infrastructure thing. So that debt is kind of standalone debt, and it is not not covered by, you know, overarching IMF uh, arrangements or, or World Bank arrangements. Um, and um, China, as I understand it, China insists on on effectively negotiating bilaterally. So it, does it, it wants the, the IMF and other lenders to share in the, the debt relief, doesn't it? So some of these projects yeah. now that China has lent to have gone bust. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's no chance of um, you know, the countries paying the money back. Yeah. So there's going to be write-downs. But China wants mm. other countries now to share yeah. in, the, in the losses. Is that, is that correct? Uh, as I understand it, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like uh, Sri Lanka has no yeah. ability to repay the debt to China. Mm. Uh, so how is this going to be resolved? Because you, you can imagine that other countries are going to say, well, look, we didn't lend the money. We, you know, we didn't have the lax lending standards um, here. We, you know, we advised you not to go and do this, but now you want us to bear the losses. I, I don't think IMF is ready to uh, make up for China's uh, loans. Certainly not. Mm. Can you see anywhere where there is agreement, where there is a p- improvement? What about on uh, climate change? We had uh, John Kerry in Beijing earlier this week. They have agreed, haven't they, to sort of restart the stalled global warming um, talks. But then at the same time, uh, President Xi said we're going to go our own way and you know create our own path uh, to reducing carbon emissions, not going to follow other nations. So even though they're talking... Does that sort of rather block the road ahead in terms of some sort of agreement? Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think uh, it it just showed that uh, uh, China is is not in America's camp, even though they have the same goal of uh, cutting greenhouse gases. Mm. But the, but the thing is, even though China has the biggest uh, solar p- uh, power network uh, electricity in the world, uh, but but it's still building a lot of uh, coal fire uh, uh, power plants. Mm. Uh, there is still a shortage of electricity in China. I don't mm. think uh, solar power can replace it. Mm. That's the problem. And if they want to meet the commitments uh, that they made to getting emissions down, uh, getting peak emissions by 2030, and then uh, achieving net zero emissions by 2060, they've got to basically reduce coal demand in China to, to zero. Well, I, uh, I think that's an impossibility. I think all this green stuff is really uh, too idealistic. Uh, practically, I don't think any country in the world can do it. Right. Well, that's a depressing thought. <laughs> but uh, yes, a lot of depressing news this week yeah. in some ways as, w- as well. But thank you very much for coming in. Have yeah, a great yeah, weekend. Go. That's Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. John Schofield, who is Managing Director of Tempest Investment. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Australia. Morning, Toby. Yeah, good morning, Peter. Uh, let's start with some data. Uh, unemployment's uh, unchanged, 3.5%, pretty close to um, a 50-year low, isn't it? This is presumably one of the, uh, the figures that the, uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia is watching pretty closely um, in terms of deciding what it's going to do next on uh, interest rates. Yeah, it was a good number. So the uh, employment number was expected to come in around 25,000 new jobs, came in at 325 as you mentioned, unemployment rate at three and a half unchanged. They were expecting it slightly higher at three point six. So, for the market, it was a it was a it was slightly surprising, not a dramatic uh, shift from the expectation. But what it did was it zoomed that focus in that the RBA again and potentially have to hike because the labour market remains tight. So all the press this morning and probably the market reaction reflected that, where uh, you know the Reserve Bank are likely to probably uh, go one more at least, um, maybe in, in August. Um, and one of the things I'll be looking at is, to, I guess, to look at how the Fed are, um, are going to move the week before because that might give them some air cover if the Fed go 25. And we had the minutes, didn't we, from the uh, the last RBA meeting uh, where they stayed on hold, didn't they? And there was a lot of debate beforehand about were they going to go and do another rate rise? Were they going to go on, on hold? What what are those minutes saying about the stance at the moment and what the RBA is looking at? So there's a, you know, there's a clear uh, recognition that things have slowed uh, from an inflationary perspective on, on the cost push side of the equation. You know, prices have come down. Uh, on the supply side of it. What concerns them, though, are two factors, which is one we've just discussed, which is the labour market. It's still tight. Um, and around that labour market tightness is a lack of increase in productivity, at least measured uh, at the moment, in terms of unit labour cost. And also a labour government here that's probably likely to be under pressure from unions to push wages higher. So this is the RBA's concern around um uh, the employment sector, and then in the housing sector, what appears to be um, uh, almost a, not would say a resurgence, but a revitalisation of the housing market, surprisingly so given the higher interest rates, 
we're actually seeing prices on property going up. Uh, and so that idea that that was going to slow things down and bring inflation down a bit quicker may may give pause to the Reserve Bank. So they're the two concerns that they have on the, the fact that inflation may be stickier and they may need to just push the pedal a little harder before they can be confident that they've got inflation untamed. The, the situation in the RBA is in, seems to mirror pretty well what a lot of other central banks uh, are in, like the Fed, the ECB, the, the Bank of England. They've got similar problems, haven't they, which is that inflation is coming down now. The data seems to clearly show that inflation has peaked, even in the UK, where um, it, it was very high. It's come down now to 7.9%, high level, but at least it's coming down. They all seem to be talking about a tight labour market, though, so they've got to go at least one more time in terms of, of interest interest rate hikes. It's interesting, isn't it, how all, all the central banks, maybe with the exception of some of the Asian ones out here, like the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China, but certainly in the West and in Australia, they're lining up in the same way. Yeah, and, and interestingly, uh, the new or the incoming Reserve Bank Governor, um, Michelle Bullock, uh, wrote a, uh, gave a speech in relation to what would be the um, non-accelerating uh, rate, of infl- uh, rate of unemployment um, non-inflation accelerating rate of unemployment, which is the NIRU, which is an economic uh, theory. And with employ- unemployment rate at 3.5%, in the Reserve Bank's view, unemployment should be closer to 4.5% to reduce the inflationary impact of tight labour markets. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, if you if you draw the correlation, then rates can go higher to force uh, more unemployment without doing damage to the the overall, you know, full employment mandate or the stable employment mandate of, of the Reserve Bank. So, yeah, the indication is that the tight labour markets are a bit of a conundrum for um, central banks and that um, the idea that uh, these tight labour markets probably uh, give central banks a chance to put a, put more weight on interest rates to reduce demand and thereby increase unemployment to the extent that gives it a non-inflationary impact. So... Sorry to confuse, but that's essentially uh, what our central bank are looking at, is that they can probably force interest rates higher to get unemployment a little higher than where it is now to rein in the inflationary impact of tight labour markets. But there are people who are worried that they could all go too far and tip the economy into recession, although the, the, the talk at the moment does seem to be that right now the economy is in a sweet spot where you know the central banks have got inflation down without actually, well, certainly in the US anyway, without actually tipping the economy into recession. And notice Goldman Sachs, they slashed their uh, probabilities of a recession down to 20%. So people seem to be getting excited about the position the economy are in at the moment yeah i think the expression is that goldilocks uh, scenario for the u.s economy and, and u.s earnings which are we're currently in the middle of i think about 75 percent beat so far on earnings um sort of puts uh, credence to the soft landing argument um whilst we're seeing a decline in earnings they're still doing better there's not been any dramatic some of the growth stocks um came off a bit sharper but they were a bit frothy in price anyway um you know, more of the value stocks performed pretty well, um, at least in the in, in the in the short term overnight. So yeah, I think uh, yeah the the market is reasonably confident at this stage that uh, we're going to you know achieve that soft landing that the Fed have been trying to navigate. So 
Um, and that's reflected, obviously, in stock prices uh, over the last couple of months. And next week, it's going to be an important week then, isn't it? The Fed is meeting. The European Central Bank is meeting. We pretty well know what they're going to do. Um, the Bank of Japan, they're also meeting as well. Seems to be more uncertainty there. People were sort of thinking that maybe Governor Ueda will abolish um, yield curve control, although he was saying this week he didn't see any reason to change uh, sort of monetary policy. But it is going to be an important week next week, isn't it, with these three central banks? Yeah, I think the Bank of Japan got a slightly higher inflation figure today at 3.3. Um, you know, if you look at the history of Japan over the last 25 years, they'd be quite happy to have some inflation. So you sort of tend to think that they'll probably err on the side of pretty much holding it. Um, ECB, you mentioned, yeah, that looks pretty clear. The Fed's the interesting one because, you know, in the lead up to it, um, you know, uh, it would suggest that despite the quite sharp re- re- decline in inflation, and at the headline level and somewhat at the core level, um, if you strip out the housing uh, cost, then 25 basis point hikes a bit of a surprise. But that's where the market is right now. So um, it'll be a key one. And um, I suspect that if they do go, it might be the, the last, uh, at least in the in the short term, or that uh, if they don't go, it'll be that they're pausing, but they're going to keep that language pretty hawkish to say that there's more in the pipe. I mean, the dot plots were talking about two more rate hikes before the end of the year, weren't they? So the markets seem to be diverging from the Fed once again. Yeah, and I think that partly that's language from the Fed, partly that's managing expectation. That often had this discussion around inflation expectation and avoiding it. You know, um, they've contained it now, they've got it down, it's not quite there, but they just don't want to let it out again. So... Uh, even if they don't go in terms of a hike, I would expect that the language is still pretty pretty firm and the dot plot won't change. Um, so it's either go now and 25 they can probably absorb or they wait, uh, but they'll be very clear that those two hikes are still in the pipeline. So what is it now that investors need to see to keep this sort of quite extraordinary stock market rally that we've had in the in the US um, sort of going? I mean, they're, they're anticipating, aren't they, at least well, one more rate hike anyway um, next week. But what needs to happen now to keep this rally, uh, keep it keep its legs running? Well, I, I think part of what we've had, and this is something to be aware of, in the last couple of months, you've got less liquidity in the market. So, and we also had quite a significant short position probably in the derivatives market and equities. So, part of what I think the rally has been over the last month or so is that maybe a little bit of people are reversing their short positions, mm-hmm. at least at the at the at the investor at the sort of trader level. And I think that would be reflected in some of the futures markets and the derivative markets. So there probably was an overweight short position in the market, and that's had to be unwound in probably liquid conditions. So once I think we get out of the summer months in the US, start to see some more constructive data, um, review the corporate earnings season most recent and the forward guidance, see how inflation appears. I think we'll get a better read on whether the market can sustain this rally. Uh, I still think it's too early to say. Uh, because I think the last few months have been quite light in terms of um, liquidity, and I think we've seen a, probably a few quite large positions who are tipping short into the market, got that wrong, and have mm. turned that around. So that's something to consider. 
the, the nature of the rally seems to be changing, doesn't it? Um, we've had this nine-day rally in the Dow, whereas the Nasdaq was down 2%. It seems to be, well, maybe broadening out is, is the right way of looking at it from these tech stocks into other uh, types of companies now. And we're seeing you know, more S&P 500 companies reach new all-time highs. Is that, is that all a positive sign? Yeah, well, the broader market, if the broader market's getting better results, so you know, people will be looking at a value. Uh, so the stocks, if they're you know based on on earnings multiples, um, would be looking at the at the at the broader index and saying, okay, uh, there's some stocks of value there. Our growth stocks obviously had a good run; they'd been underperforming the previous year and and picked up. And I think that's probably partly a little bit of exuberance on the growth side. And those growth stocks are coming back a little bit. They're a bit frothy. Um, and maybe when when that happens is, you know, maybe people just pivot out of that growth, maybe a little bit over the top and come back into value where they might be see some more, you know, better value in terms of the pricing on some of the um, uh, the more, you know, less sexy stocks, I guess, for want of a better expression. Okay. Well, Toby, thanks very much for talking with me this morning. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the cricket over the weekend. That's Toby, Thank you. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Australia. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Providing a view from mainland China will be Ben Cavender, Managing Director at the China Market Research Group. Have a great weekend. Money Talk 